Call it. Call it, yes. For a whole lot. Just call it. Welcome to episode 37 of Call It Friend of the podcast where two friends watch a film decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself and DJ Richie and my co-host Donna continue and watch 1971's The Devils. As always, this podcast contains spoilers for the film right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. Please follow Call It Friendo Podcast on Instagram, like the Facebook page, leave a review on iTunes, or any or all of the above. Please send any questions or recommendations to Call It Friendo Podcast at gmail.com or send us a DM on Instagram. Yeah, I'm thinking we're back. What have you been watching? So I've watched a couple of things since last we spoke. I watched Broadchurch Season 1. Nice. Any good? I thought it was good. It's nice to make a dent in my British police procedural backlog. Uh, Broadchurch Season 1 is from back in 2013, but I finally got right into it now. It stars Olivia Coleman and David Tennant as Always police good. officers solving a murder case in a small English coastal town. Uh, overall, I enjoyed it, but it does feel like the whole premise was reverse engineered from the from the shock ending of season one. No spoilers. Like but usual suspects. More... Exactly. That's what happens. It turns out that one of them is secretly Kevin Spacey in disguise. Spoilers for the oh, usual no! suspects. Oh, <laughs> no! Not Kevin Spacey in disguise. That would yep. be a hilarious sketch to do on uh, the end of Usual Suspects. Just verbal Kent telling his story, and then the police chief goes, wait a minute. You're, you're Kevin Spacey! Get, get away <laughs> from me! Kevin Spacey, the famous pedophile, but they would say pedophile. I was talking to um, an advertising producer around the time when all that noise came out, and he, sa- he told me that that was just a well-known secret for about 20 years, that Kevin Spacey was all handsy. So I guess the, well, he, the, like, he just meant like he knew that. Like, no one else knew it. He was like, yeah, it was a well-known secret known by me. <laughs> <laughs> and my yeah, best yeah. friend Kevin Spacey and the things I, who, that we used to do together. <laughs> who was this guy? Uh, the advertising producer. Yeah, what was I his name? Possibly say his his name is Laurent. Should I watch Broadchurch? I think so. Well, there are two more seasons, so I've no idea where it goes from here. And and I've started watching shows firmly in the in the Donica Tiernan style of watching one season and then moving on. So I, I will eventually check out the other two seasons. I'd say my only gripes with her, with this show are that I didn't enjoy a lot of the editing and music cues, which is in direct contrast with Save Me, which I think yeah, yeah. was helped immensely due to those areas. Ultimately, I'd say it's worth watching, but I found the David Tennant, uh, Scott, gruff Scottish police detective to be a bit grating at times. Okay, so the high bar for me at the moment with this kind of crack is Happy Valley. Better or worse than Happy Valley? Worse than Happy Valley. Happy Valley is far better because I think Happy Valley delves into just kind of character conflict and struggles in a, in a much deeper way mm. and is more interesting and better acted. No offense to some of the, no offense to the Broadchurch cast or solid actors. You've got some really good people in there. Vicky McClure is in it as well. She's great. Among others. Yeah. Yeah, among others, but I would say Happy Valley is is better. I'm actually I've got lined up. Uh, I'm going to rewatch all of the This Is England fair soon enough uh, because I haven't got enough fucking grimness in my life. I don't know. Uh, I just thought Vicky McClure was uh, like uh, for me anyway. Well, apart from Adrian Dunbar, 
But I think Vicky McClure is just terrific in Line of Duty. And I was like, mm. I want to go back to the start of her career because I remember her being particularly good in those as well. Uh, I've been keeping it crime, but on the other side of the Atlantic. For, well, firstly, I've been keeping up with Mayor of Easttown, which manages the trick of handling grim subject matter in a manner that's not grimly overwhelming. It's a trick that's obviously normally left to British murder mysteries, but... Um, the series creator, Brad Igglesby, and a star, Kate Winslet, they manage it pretty well. This one seems to have captured the public imagination to such a degree that it's warranted its own SNL skit. So I'm going to leave it until the final one airs to really pull it apart. And maybe you can take six hours aside to hop aboard that train because, uh, yeah, I'd like I to talk I, about I it. I think I definitely can. I have time to watch it before our next recording. I'd, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd certainly like to talk about it. Have you been watching any films or anything? The other thing that I watched is another Apple TV property. We've been talking a lot about those. Uh, this week I watched Long Way Up, which is the oh, third yeah, installment yeah. of Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman riding motorbikes around the world. This time they went from the southern tip of Argentina up to Los Angeles. Uh, now, I have zero interest in cars or motorbikes, as we've established in previous, uh, previous episodes, but these shows mm. are all about the scenery and the people, and the scenery across South and Central America is unreal, and the people are all super friendly and nice and helpful. So uh, I, I remember, um, I don't know which series of, it, of theirs it was, but I remember one, when they were crossing Kazakhstan. And yeah, that was the first one, Long Way Round. There's just the eeriest air of danger <laughs> just everywhere they went in Kazakhstan. I felt anyway, just like, you know, boys are like, but, you know, they'd be invited into people's houses and then the people in the houses would show them their collection of like yeah, yeah, Kalashnikovs yeah, yeah. and, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a, there's yeah. an especially, I don't know, it, spoilers for real life. Can, can I give you spoilers for real life? If you want to watch Long Way Up without spoilers mm. for you and McGregor's life. Then, so in Long Way Round, the one that you were talking about where they went across yeah. Russia, they reached a point in Outer Mongolia where they were making, they were doing something like 20 or 30 miles a day. It was just terrible uh, terrain. Terrain, yeah. And so they had an option. They could turn left and go north to Russia or they could try to keep going through. And ultimately they chose to keep going. And when they made it to Ulaanbaatar, they visited this orphanage and they they met these little orphan children who'd grown up obviously in like you know terrible yeah. living conditions yeah. at some point after the show so they they during the, the the filming of the show they they met this little girl called Jamyan who was 2 mm -hmm. years old sometime after the show Hugh McGregor went back to that orphanage and adopted that girl Oh, wow. In Long Way Up, she joins them for part of the trip, and she's 18 years old. Wow. That's and got she a... Grew, and, she, and she grew up in the USA. So that's she's, got a lovely sensibility to it. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's really, really worth watching for that reason. It's very well, emotional. I'm, I remember I really enjoyed the first two series of, the, of this, so I'm, I am going to watch um, this one that you're watching now. But I, just, I remember watch, at the time when I was watching him going, yeah... That's what, like, okay, maybe with or without the TV cameras, but like, sure, I mean, if you've got anybody with any bit of clout that isn't doing a mad traveling show is missing out. Mm. Like, I yeah, even, because, like, I, yeah, like, what, why not? Like, yeah, if you had the opportunity to do something like this, I'd love to do something like this. Oh, exactly. First, I'd have like, to learn how to ride a motorbike. Richard Ayuwadi did one as well. I, like, oh, uh, yeah. 
Let's say that travel I, man thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I watched the one that had uh, Johnny Vegas on it because I I love Johnny Vegas. But uh, yeah, yeah. Anybody's not doing that. I just you're mad. Why would you? Yeah, not because take it's it's, of it's an excuse to go on jollies paid for by the BBC or some other corporation. In this case, Apple with Long Way Up. It's great. Yeah, and like you know, there's cameras following you, so you're guaranteed to not die. Right, that's it. Or if they, if you do die, it's going to be amazing because that's going to be a YouTube <laughs> clip for the ages of watching like you, McGregor, and Charlie Borman get smashed against the side of a bus in Chile. Well, but, you know, they never. Um, Steve Irwin had always said that if he got killed on the job, he'd like them to broadcast his death, and they did not. I finally got around to watching Guy Ritchie's The Gentleman and damn the fucking eyes of every critic who sniffed as it as I would, I'd probably have watched it twice more by now uh, had I li- had, like had I not listened to critics at the time like the principal sniffers like took the tone of kind of oh Guy Ritchie's doing his gangster t- thing again but seeming to forget that he doing the British gangster thing is deliriously entertaining and you add like the intensely likable star power of McConaughey uh, to the mix alongside None less than, let's say, uh, Colin Farrell, who's always great, Hugh Grant, who is great of late, and Charlie Hunnam, who is great here, at least. And, like, I, you could call it the completion of the fucking In It trilogy, let's say, with Lock, Stock, and Snatch, which this, like, it might be a little too polished to stand alongside those, but the feeling is there, like the mood, and that's what Guy Ritchie is when he's operating at peak. It's more of a mood and than a plot, and he's... To me, anyway, he's in sixth gear here. And he, like to me, he could actually, he could do an anthology show whose entire byline was to dance around plots that don't fucking matter, featuring bad guys you love in or around the greater London area, and I would legitimately never miss an episode. I remember one time I was entering the USA and the border agent looked at my passport and said, are you related to Guy Ritchie? And I said, <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. Obviously. Did you? There you go now. The Gentleman is a perfect airplane movie. Oh, but I wasn't on an airplane. Why is that? Why? Just because it's shite? Is that what you mean? <laughs> no, because it, it's just entertaining and fun and you don't really, like, yeah, it's, it'll just wash over you. Although I will say one thing for it, uh, and it just must be something to do with Matthew McConaughey or, like, maybe it's to do with the fact that I read his book recently, but there's a situation in it where he's, he would seem to slightly be in peril and I just really, really, really wanted him to not die. Like, it would have ruined my weekend had he died. Luckily, Matthew McConaughey is invincible, and he's going to outlive us all. I saw The Gentleman in the cinema, and I remember almost nothing about it. I remember uh, Colin Farrell as a boxing trainer. I remember mm. Jeremy Strong from Succession as a sort of... He's a kind of my ch- camp, camp sort of villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's about it. That's all I remember. I thought it was fine, fun, but completely disposable. Although I see that Guy Ritchie, I was browsing in my local Blockbuster again, and I saw that Guy Ritchie <laughs> has a new film out. It was yeah, in the, with uh, Jason Statham. New, new releases VHS section, and it seems to be quite well uh, received. Uh, this is The Wrath of Man, is it? Is that what's called? The Wrath of Man. That's a great title. Uh, yeah, I think it's Jason Statham just fucking shit up yeah. in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I heard yeah. it's quite serious in tone. I'm down with that. Well, I don't know about that because, you know, I don't Revolver. think he's quite serious. Oh, well, other, other things, because there's one I definitely want to get around to. So, yeah, I watched the first episode of This Time with Alan Partridge, and I'm not sure I'll carry uh-huh. on. I love, I, love Ar- <laughs> I love Alan, 
And um, to paraphrase Alan, I just wish they'd stop getting Alan wrong. Uh, this time he was reunited with the Gibbons brothers, who were his writing partners on um, the perfect Alan outing, Alpha Papa. And hence it should work. And occasionally it does, but it tries a bit. And for my money, the best Partridge, uh, I'm Alan Partridge seasons one and two, which are as funny as Father Ted, which is my high bar, does not. I'm Alan Partridge doesn't really, isn't really a try hard show. It simply just seems to happen if you follow me. And maybe it's because he's like back in the world of TV where everyone is actually fake, but it's missing like the, the grubbiness of the former outings when it's like being real and when it's being when it's being heightened it's just not what i'm there for and i realize what an ownership taking fanboy twat i must sound like but my first great love is comedy and alan when firing right is fucking comedy mecca so yeah to cut it short i don't quite know will i carry on with it oh that's you firing well the most important thing i've watched this week by far apologies to Ken Russell, is season two of The Wire, which you'd think I'd be inhaling with less vigor, having watched the whole thing at least four times, but no, I couldn't watch this fast enough. I still think it's the best season, and I'm, and I'm fairly certain I understand why people rate it so low. Namely, most people probably only watch the series once, and like series two famously hangs around at the docks for most of the season and relegates the Barksdale crew to the background. It's the first glimpse the show gave us as to what it was really about, but for a lot of people, understandably, it just seemed like they had taken away their uh, gangsters versus cops show that they fell in love with and replaced it uh, with a modern day miniseries of On the Waterfront. Actually, no, it didn't. It didn't seem like that. That's literally what they did. But in hindsight and on rewatch um, and lining it up beside season three with politicians, four set in the school system and five viewing it all through the prism of journalism, you realize that the doc story is a crucial piece of the bigger picture and. And Andy, all the pieces matter. Besides being a crucial part of like the grand socioeconomic narrative, that of the disenfranchised in the face of what some would call progress, let's say, it's also got the series' best contained story, in my opinion, which is like the tragic arc of Frank Sabodka, who's like a, this former union giant reduced to collaboration with the global malevolence personified by the Greek in order to prop up three generations of dock work who know nothing else and are fast running out of shit to do. Like, it's straight up Shakespearean. And his idiot son, Ziggy, who should have been in an improv troupe, but like trusted in the strength yeah. of his generations instead. And he ultimately might have been on... SNL were not for his father's face, fatal belief in the union's immortality. And in an unusual move, which I love, uh, Ziggy has a massive wang and thus acts like every puny man I've ever known in possession of a big one. As is my way, I won't progress directly onto season three. But honestly, for me, series two down by the docks could be a mini series all of its own and stand next to the other four seasons of, of the show. And it's also got the best closing montage, I Feel All Right by Steve Earle. Oh, yeah. Good old Stevie Earle. I went to Baltimore in 2006. I've been to Baltimore Jesus. a couple of times. Yeah. And I would say season two of The Wire is the closest to my experience of the city. Did you go to any Wire locations? I think now there are like Wire tours. But in 2006, The Wire was only, I think they'd only done about to the end of season three at that point. It, it, and and this is a this is a show that uh, a lot of people paid no attention to that show when it was on. 
It was years later that it became yeah, like me. a crit- critic's me. darling, but there were no acting awards ever given to it. I think of like nothing. They never, never won any Emmys. Was never nominated for any Emmys. I don't think. Do you know what? Like what? What put me off watching The Wire longer than it, it might have is the same thing that um, put me off reading the comic book Watchmen for a long time, which was listening to morons. People I knew told me that it was really complicated and fo- difficult to follow. Of both things, different people, but both both occasions, I was like, ah, I don't know about that. And then when I eventually, it's not fucking hard to follow. It, just, it demands you pay attention, sure, but like, you know, is that so much to ask? But you also watched um, something of uh, this week's director, no? I did. I watched uh, the fantastic Altered States, and by fantastic, I mean actually shite. I yeah. did watch Ken Russell's Alter States. Maybe we should discuss a little bit about the old Kenneth Russell. Well, I I've had three I I I'd had sorry three distinct encounters with the work of Ken Russell before watching The Devils. The first was on the DVD extras of the Who film Tommy, based on their rock opera of the same name. Um, just because they were interviewing him a lot. Obviously, he directed the film. Uh, he was very worried for Pete Townsend at the time of filming because he was apparently consuming up to like two bottles of vodka a day. As I think we should mind. all be worried about Pete Townsend, particularly his <laughs> internet browsing choices. There are many things to, to criticize Pete Townsend hey, for, I feel. Uh, look, somebody's got to do the research, Andy, research, all right? Of course. Somebody's He's got to do the research. doing research folks it's fine keep buying who albums well he might have been doing research to remake tommy because tommy features a, a child being sexually abused and a song accompanying it keith moon is the the uncle who sexually abuses them and um, the film like is bizarrely star-studded and fairly fairly interesting if not exactly engaging let's say um and to mm-hmm. everyone's credit the story and visuals are both fairly memorable if not so much the music i'm not a big fan of the who I'd say it's the only time a concept album has been so directly adapted for the screen, and it's also just one of those films that even were you not familiar with the director's work, you can feel someone's got their paws all over it. Do you know what I mean? It feels like so. It feels like somebody's work, as a you know, as opposed to just jobbing. Then the next was on Celebrity Big Brother when he had a falling out with Jade Goody and her mother over cheese and crackers and left the house of his own volition after a week. After which. He referred to the two as demonic presences. Uh, I remember my college co- uh, housemates were going, um, who's the fucking weird old guy? And I was thinking, that's the director of Tommy, is it? Uh, I didn't have a smartphone at the time, so that would have been direct knowledge coming from my brain instead of having to wait, look up and, the name or something. And and he chose to offend Jade Goody, the people's princess. Indeed, yeah. I mean, he would rue the day. I know whose side I'm on. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, it's all in the name, isn't it? One's a goodie, mm-hmm. one's a baddie. Yeah. One's a goodie, one's a baddie. Mm-hmm. Her second name's Goody. Yeah, I know. All right. Uh, what was your third encounter? What's the third fine. part of this riddle? Uh, it's no riddle. I don't know why I'm making a story of it. Uh, <laughs> it would have been yeah, like later that year in college. <laughs> One time assigned... you were visited by Ken Russell and he said, you will, you will meet me three more times in your life. <laughs> I was assigned D.H. Lawrence's um, deliberately impenetrable women in love, um, the grand thesis of which is, uh, ironically, to get fingered by your wife during intercourse in order to level the playing field between partners. I True thought story. they were impenetrable. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's that's what I was playing on there. Oh, I didn't get it. See, these, these high, high, highbrow literary <laughs> references fly over my head. 
I well, I didn't even finish the book. It is okay. It is fucking impenetrable. The book is. Uh, so I just have you tried? Said, have you tr- did, did you try penetrating the book? <laughs> In a manner of speaking. You mean you put your pen- penis between the pages? Is that what you mean? Is yeah. that the manner of speaking that yeah. you're referring to? Yeah, that checking. was it. I yeah. prefer clarity in these. I'll tell situations. you what. I, I'll tell you what. It was about a four hundred pager when I started. It was a one pager when I finished. You get my drift. I don't, but I imagine it involves paper cuts. No, I, I feel like we're doing a disservice to the work of Ken <laughs> Russell here, and I blame we're, we're, you. Fair. That's fair enough. Um, so, women in love. Anyway, I figured, fuck it, and I watched the film, and I actually really enjoyed the film, and um, particularly like its visual sense, which was it's quite it's quite trippy, very very colorful. It's like a Jimi Hendrix album cover, and I also found that as for the devils, actually, like he casts interesting looking people with faces that would you know further contribute to the film's texture, like fucking Chris Evans or uh, Ryan Gosling or Reese Witherspoon would never have made it into a Ken Russell joint. And by I all accounts, know. I feel like I feel like Reese Witherspoon has a vaguely oblong head. You think she has a bizarrely large jaw shape? I think you're right. Yeah. Okay. Maybe she would have made it. Charlize she Theron would would not get cast. No, she's she's normal. By all accounts, Russell is also was at one point well known for his uh, odd biopics of composers, which. I'll never get around to. Um, but if nothing else, a man who butters his bread making a biopic of Franz Liszt called Listamania, starring Roger Daltrey, he could never be accused of being a charlatan, which he would be. Had you yeah. watched any Ken Russell before this? No, I think I might have seen Women in Love uh, when I was much younger, but I was scarred by the nude wrestling scene. Scarred of, or...? Uh, Scarred, that's the one where part of your body starts to fill with blood, correct? That's it, yeah. That's, yeah, I was, I was deeply scarred. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's why I recall Oliver Reed rolling around. Who's he rolling around with? Do you know? Some hot piece of ass. Yeah, that's why. That, you took the words right out of my salivating mouth. But uh, as you mentioned, I also watch Altered States. Altered States is one of Ken Russell's better received films. Uh, It stars William Hurt as Joe Rogan, a scientist who takes some on it and alpha brain before getting into his isolation tank. This results in him regressing to a primitive ape man and commentating on MMA fights before signing a deal with Spotify and moving to Austin. And uh, yeah, I was not a fan of this film. It's based on the novel by Paddy Chayefsky, one of the all-time great screenwriters. But the story does not hold up for a modern audience, uh, possibly because there's less mystery around DMT or ayahuasca these days. Um, I don't blame Ken Russell for any of the problems on the film because he was just a hired hand. Uh, Apparently, he was the 27th director approached for the job. Jesus, But it is, it is, he's literally... William Hurt goes in an isolation tank after taking magic mushrooms and regresses and becomes an ape man and terrorizes people. That is the film. Good God. I know. This from the, ma- this from the man who wrote Network. Yeah, so that's my exposure to Big Kenny Russ uh, until watching The Devils. And I thought The Devils was far better than Altered States. I think The Devils is yeah. generally regarded as uh, Ken Russell's best film, at least going by the IMDb ratings. And of course, there's nothing more accurate in this world than an IMDb rating. That cannot be skewed in any way whatsoever. Accurate. Completely accurate. Mm. That's factual. I would say 
The Devils is definitely the best Ken Russell film that I've seen. And I feel like I liked this film more than you, but I'd say you still liked it a bit, no? Yeah, I enjoyed it. It's not something that I'll perhaps choose to revisit, but it. I was a little concerned. I think about one hour into the film, I was asking myself, like, wait a minute, the criteria I set down was horror. And the first hour is just kind of exploring uh, the main character, Oliver Reed, uh, Father Urbain Grandier's uh, motivations and his role within this plague-ravaged town. And then at some point, approximately halfway through the film, it just descends into fucking chaos as the whole yeah. place falls apart. The whole town is basically destroyed and there is a, a lot of gore and horror. So I think it does, it certainly takes its place in the, in the yeah, horror like, pantheon thanks to the second half. I mean, I always think, I always like this question. What, do you, what to you do you think defines a horror film? What makes a film a horror film? For me, it would be mood, basically. That's it. It could be about anything, but it's got to have a certain mood. Like, there are certain things that call themselves horror films that, to me, just are not. I I think I go back to the jump scare. I know it's that's only one aspect of horror, but for me, there needs to be some element. It doesn't have to be specifically a jump scare, but in, it's probably that's the easiest way to build up tension and then have that quick kind of blast of, of fear. Well, I don't what, know. What, what, are, what are your examples of horror films that can be labeled horror films that don't have anything like that? They don't have any tension built jump scare. Mm, let me think. Well, I mean, this, for example. I guess. I don't know. I have to think on that more. Because, yeah, I suppose. But, like, so then what qualifies this? Because this is definitely a horror film because it's fucking horrific, you know? I I guess it's more psychological. Well, it's mainly geared around the torture, the suffering of a plague victim, the desecration of a church, the rape of a crucifix. There's a lot of religious imagery that verges into, let's say, blasphemy, hence why there was a, a lot of controversy around the film. Friend of the podcast, John Spillane, says uh, as his hipster answer that his favorite horror film is Blue Valentine. Uh, okay, yeah, that's, that's funny. But then how old is he? 29? You hear that, John? Yes. You're a child. You don't know what real <laughs> horror is. You think you know. You think you know. You're not even in your 30s yet. I'm 10 years older than you, John. Yeah, I mean, I suppose also, you're, you're right, fair enough. The basic currency of horror is build tension, release with a jump scare. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Does Shaun of the Dead qualify as a horror film? Barely. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's the typical Edgar Wright send-up of the genre, but it's also an entry in the genre itself. But I'd say it's heavy on the comedy and less yeah, so. Yeah, it still yeah. functions, I guess, but is there, even, is there ever really a lot of tension in Shaun of the Dead? I think there it is, actually. It still feels like, I guess there's a reasonable amount, but ultimately it's still funny. When his mum dies. Although, actually, to be fair, a good example of um, horror mixed with comedy would be a lot of the Sam uh, Raimi films. Like yeah, Evil that's Dead, true. Drag Me. Drag Me to Hell. That's terrifying, that film. I love Drag Me to Hell. It's so I funny saw that... and terrifying. I saw that in my own in a gigantic cinema, like it was a huge room. It would, have, it would have been the biggest in the place. I went to a, like a, an 11 a.m. showing and 
I just had such a blast with it because it is hilarious. It is great. But it's, it's also really funny. It's fucking terrifying. It's so terrifying. The jump scares in it are <laughs> yeah. out fucking rageous. Yeah. And oh, there's one where I, an eyeball ends up in her mouth. Yeah. <laughs> it's fucking. Oh my god, it's so gross. But uh, yeah, that's a great film. That's definitely a horror. I suppose. I want to watch Drag Me to Hell again now. <laughs> yeah, I've seen me it about too. Five times. Yeah, I've seen it a lot. It's very good. As, yeah, yeah, so funny. That, to me, is like peak Raimi, to be honest. Everyone throws yeah. all the, the credit on uh, Evil Dead too, but I would give it to that. All right, well, this this one does not go for that. This one goes for the more literary highbrow horror that William Friedkin would have defined, I suppose, with um, The Exorcist famously, even though The Exorcist contains two very good jump scares. Was this made at the same time as The Exorcist, or is The, is yeah. the Exorcist after this? Or is it around no, the same ar- time? around the same time, both 1972. If you gave me a 50-50... There? This is 71. Oh, no. If you, if you gave me the no, choice. No, Exorcist is 74. Go on. 74, yeah. I mean, if I had the choice, it obviously is Exorcist all the way. Yes. That's far for more sure. to my tastes. I, yes, I would agree with you. Um, but I still really enjoyed this, which is... I, well, I suppose... I mean, I had read the book beforehand as well, and not because I was seeking to uh, watch the films, just it, I, I saw it was Aldous Huxley's second most famous book, and I really enjoyed his most famous book, so I got it. It's based on Aldous Huxley's The Devil, Devils of Lodur, Lodun, uh, which is, was a 1952 non-fiction novel based on real happenings in 17th century France when a priest was tried for seducing a whole convent of nuns via devilry and would go on to be burnt at the stake. And, and like the novel kind of uses the incident to not only speculate on the origins of stuff like mass hysteria and multiple personality disorder stemming from sexual repression particularly but um to kind of theorize what yet to be encountered phenomena might be incapacitating human societies of his day uh, which is the clever look that it has at itself and um i'd like i considered like this period of history amongst the most fascinating to write about with a view to cross-examining the modern world just the, that immediate, the the religious wars. The best works uh, I've encountered about it would be the the book Q by Luther Blissett, which is actually for Italian guys. Dan Carlin's lengthy breakdown of the Siege of Munster on a hardcore, epi- uh, hardcore history episode named Prophets of Doom. And Ronan Bennett's mini-series about Guy Hawk called Gunpowder. And of course, actually now The Devils. On paper, the idea of making like the Bible available in any language one would want to read it in seems fair enough but it unleashed a like a wave of horrific violence uh on europe uh, it made isis look like fucking airbnb super hosts um and all that for, and basically all of that is just because what we take for granted these days is that these people actually believed this shit <laughs> Like they did. So when they got like the the Bible, the word of God would have been guarded almost by priests. But like they did it not for the people's safety. They did it out of a sense of elitism because only fucking priests could speak Latin. And it got translated in all these languages and you had all these different people interpreting it different ways and doing loads of mad shit. Anybody that's listening? Fair. I think that's quite similar to what happened with Facebook when they started opening it up to members of the general public. Do you think? Very similar. Yeah. I would agree, yeah. Before it they went, bastardized it, the whole thing. Yeah, before when it was the Facebook, and just for people in Harvard. Yeah, that was that was the real deal. That was the Latin. That's Facebook. when it was cool. 
But if you like, honestly, look up because somebody is going to have to make a film about the siege of Munster someday. I would urge anybody to look what happened. What were we talking this... about? Why were you referencing Q? Because you've talked about it on a previous podcast. What film was that? I'm not sure. Genuinely, can't, can't recall. But that as a book, okay. it had a huge effect. If anyone on me. has listened to these podcasts and can remember what episode that was, where Donica mentioned Q by Luther Blissett, send us a DM uh, and you could win my copy of Q. You could win Donica's daughter. No! I did not put her up for that. The craziest thing about that era is just the stuff that people would have pictured themselves on being on the side of good. The stuff that those people were up to was just bananas. Like in Munster, children were made police officers all over the place. <laughs> That's quality. I respect yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And like, just given just immense amounts amounts of uh, power, and of course they were children, so they abused the power like crazy. Uh, yeah, yeah, loads of mad shit like that. Anyway, tell us uh, who was in this. Yeah, so dipping into the cast, we've got Oliver Reed starring as Urban Grandier, Father Urban Grandier. Reed was at the height of his powers at the time of this film. You could see mm. his magnetic X factor in full flow. He was a handsome man. Yeah, he was he... in peak. Don't leave him alone with your mother phase. No, Actually, he never anyone. really le- left that phase. Only the reasons about your mother, over the your years. father, <laughs> anyone, me. Yeah, yeah. He'd for already sure. worked. He'd already worked with Ken Russell on Women in Love a couple of years earlier. In the UK, he's probably mainly remembered now for his drunken appearance on the Michael Aspel talk show, mm. uh, which is a fun watch. I'll add that to yes. uh, the links. You can watch uh, a man, a British man crumble as alcohol destroys him and his life if that's what if that's what you enjoy you can watch that video i'll put that it's on youtube i'll put it in the yeah. show notes if even through all that if that's how you get your kicks is watching a, a middle-aged british man <laughs> have a breakdown on tv then uh, i'll even, give you that that's yours like i mean he maintained his piercing gaze and so forth like i think to the end of his life but like having worked in many uh, having worked many years in pubs, I can tell you, like that late era Reed had the look of like your local booze hound, who you'd make a decision amongst the management not to serve on the day of a wedding, or if there were Americans about. Um, still, fucking terrific performance in this, and he's got more testosterone in a look than Joe Rogan has supplemented in a lifetime. Just to give you a taste of uh, Oliver Reed's life, here's the Wikipedia section on his death, which very much epitomizes the way he lived. Reed died from a heart attack during a break from filming Gladiator in Valletta, Malta, on the afternoon of 2nd of May 1999. According to witnesses, he drank eight pints of German lager, a dozen shots of rum, half a bottle of whiskey, and a few shots of Hennessy cognac in a drinking match against a group of sailors on shore leave from HMS Cumberland at a local pub. His bar bill totaled a little over 270 Maltese lira, approximately 450 British pounds. After beating five much younger Royal Navy soldiers at arm wrestling, Reed suddenly collapsed, dying while en route to hospital in an ambulance. He was 61 years old. Wait, I have something for this. Respect. <laughs> Living the British uh, dream. Definitely dying as he lived, and um, I bet he was having fun. I think so. Uh, mm. He was uh, reputedly extremely shy and tended to rely on alcohol in social situations, which I guess went well. <laughs> 
<laughs> he worked. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Got over it, didn't he? He, he, over, he, he overcame his problem. He overcame shyness successfully. With alcohol. With Listen, very children. few side effects. Wow, I didn't know there was a magic... <laughs> there's a magic juice you can drink, and it'll help you overcome your shyness. Why are, why are doctors it's, not prescribing this? It's tang. It's mad. You can drink yeah. tang. Just like the astronauts. That's great. Indeed. I saw that in a supermarket in Spain the other day. I was tempted to buy it. You I've should. never tried it. Yeah. You should. And I learned really. from I learned from Frank Sabatka the other day that uh, the astronauts drank it. This is it. You're just you're like, oh Frank Sabotka this, Frank Sabotka that. <laughs> That's all you ever talk about now. Is well oh, this is what does Frank Sabotka think about this? Oh, well God. he's dead. He got murdered, spoilers. So anyway, next up. Vanessa Redgrave portrayed Sister Jean, Jean, I think it's Jean, Sister Jean Desange, mm. proclaimed as the greatest actress of her time by Tennessee Williams. Nice, good street uh, cred. Yeah, so the character Sister Jean Desange was originally to be played by future Labour MP Glenda Jackson, who had starred opposite Reed in Russell's Women in Love, as well as in Russell's The Music Lovers. However, Jackson turned down the role saying, I don't want to play any more neurotic sex-starved parts. Russell later claimed that he felt Jackson had actually turned down the role because it had been truncated from his original screenplay. Jackson mm. was finally replaced by Vanessa Redgrave. Vanessa Redgrave has six Oscar nominations. Can you name any of them? Uh, Howard's End. That's good. That was a nomination in 1992. If you can name any of the other five, I will be very impressed. I cannot. So in 1966, she was in Morgan, A Suitable Case for Treatment. Classic. 1968, Isadora. Classic. 1971, Mary Queen of Scots. A classic. 1977's Julia. Also a classic. classic. 1984's The Bostonians. <laughs> I'm going to go out and say that was a classic. These are all classics. <laughs> can't believe you haven't seen them. Yeah. There are no tukey bookey. Um, I was because um, I don't care much about what like once you everybody's just a, a gossipy whore once they get on Wikipedia. So with as was the case with uh, Vanessa Redgraves, I was looking around her personal life, and she I learned she's from the big style acting dynasty, the Redgraves. Her birth was announced on stage at the Old Vic by Lawrence Olivier. Can you imagine what a nightmare of a household that would be? House full of actors. Good oh, lord! Oh yeah, well, what terrible, Gee. terrible. The Richardsons, the Redgraves. It's a thing of nightmares, folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And imagine, like, the the disappointing member of the family wants to be a doctor. Mm. In 2006, uh, Reg Redgrave married her second husband, a man we have mentioned already on this podcast in our discussion of the lost city of Zed, Mr. Franco Nero. Yeah, that's right, Django himself. I was looking at it. So they first got together on the set of Camelot, and then she was with Timothy Dalton for years, and then she got back with Franco Nero. Can you imagine, like, what a shadow would have been cast over fucking Timothy Dalton by by like, what a former lover to have to live up to? Django himself, Franco Nero. I mean, have you seen him in his day? He was a hot piece of ass. Franco Nero has been in the news recently for a film which he's putting together. Um, it features a role of uh, a pedophile, and uh, Franco Nero has cast Kevin Spacey. What? Yeah, this is true. Kevin Spacey's return to acting is playing the role of a pedophile in uh, a film directed by Franco Nero. I don't think he should I do that. I <laughs> think it's an Italian film. 
So he's ah, going to be a fun, bubbly Spacey. Italian pedophile, maybe. Ah, right, that's okay. Yeah. Hey. Come here, let me, let me see your bum. See, that's it. See, I stepped back for I was going to go into some sort of vaguely racist caricature of some kind of Italian pedophile. I stepped back. I said, <laughs> hey. And then, like on the edge of the cliff, I stepped back. Let's play hide in the cannelloni. Plummeted, plummeted <laughs> to your inevitable demise. Good luck with that. You hashtag cancel Tiernan. Mamma mia! What the sexy a young boy? Okay. Not even uh, trying. Not uh, even trying. Not, not even trying. Just next next cast member Dudley Sutton played Baron de Lobardemont. This role was originally supposed to go to Spike Milligan, but there were concerns that he couldn't pull off such a serious part. Ultimately, Dudley Sutton was cast. Dudley Sutton is perhaps best known to UK audiences for his role as Tinker in Lovejoy. Did you ever watch Lovejoy? No, but I love Ian McShane. I love Joy. Nice. <laughs> My parents were antique dealers and owned an antique shop, so I watched a lot of young. Uh, I watched a lot of Lovejoy as a young man. It was a great wow. show, as you say. Looking, Mr. looking behind the Ritchie curtains. Yeah. Hey, we, I like to keep things. I, I like to keep things hidden i think it takes away some of the mystique if you know too much i'll tell you this though i ran into the great ian mcshane in the street in edinburgh and wow. i was i was so drunk i saw him and i went that's ian mcshane that's what i said i said that's ian mcshane <laughs> he didn't say and like i, I didn't interact all right love joy i was we very did. drunk i'd been drinking all day at that point I was living an Oliver Reed-style fantasy. In 2003, Dudley Sutton, at age 70, appeared in a one-man show at the Edinburgh Fringe titled Killing Kittens, based on the mad. ancient internet meme, Every Time You Masturbate, God Kills a Kitten. In an interview promoting the show, Sutton described it as a show about wanking. <laughs> 70 years old. At the he Edinburgh was somebody's Fringe. grandfather at this time. Well, maybe I don't. Yeah. Know. I don't know. If maybe it depends if he was busy killing kittens. Do you know he who could I'll have bet repurposed that into children? What? Do you know who I'll bet does not have uh, have children? Murray, Murray Melvin? Melvin. There's no way. Wait, I I do want to say that one more oh. thing about Dudley Sutton. From that high of appearing at the Edinburgh Fringe in a one man show about wanking, Sutton transcended to the stratosphere when, in 2004, he appeared in the Danny Dyer masterpiece, The Football Factory. Ah, oh, nice. Good for you. Mm -hmm. And then 14 years later, mm -hmm. 14 years later, Dudley Sutton died. The end. Oh. I like to <laughs> I like to provide closure on these things. Danny Dyer, famous friend of Harold Pinter. Right. They're very similar people. And didn't Danny Dyer appear in a staging of the dumb waiter? He did with Martin Freeman. Mm, but where, he was playing the role of the mechanical dumb waiter. Is that correct? <laughs> that is correct. Yes, he fact. was not playing a human in it. No, no, he was no. Playing no. And, an inanimate object, and thus in this he was a great success. Yeah, that's his the high point of his career. Apart from going around the world and finding hard cunts to try to big himself up against. I'll tell you who is, doesn't look uh, like a hard cunt. Who's that? Murray, Murray Melvin. Melvin. You're obsessed <laughs> with you. You're all Frank Sabocas and Murray Melvins. Murray bloody Melvin. Murray Melvin. Murray Melvin. Mel has the <laughs> Go ahead. Talk about his weird face. Go. He's got the kind of face that you could happily dine out on for years, like fucking Brad DeRiff or Bonnie Ahrens or um, 
Susan Boyle. A nice crisp 2009 Britain's Got Talent reference there for those who are keeping track. Uh, he worked Boyle uh, number... versus Melvin. <laughs> Battle of the Faces. He worked uh, a number of more times with uh, uh, Ken Russell and um, he directed a few theatre pieces uh, written by Devil's composer, Peter Maxwell Davies, who was gay, but that's not he important. Fam- he famously directed uh, Killing Kittens, the Dudley Sutton <laughs> show. And he, yeah, he remained um, very good friends with Russell until the latter's death, um, which they fell out over. Hmm. Marty Melvin is probably most well known for playing the role of Reverend Samuel Runt in Barry Lyndon. Yes, and Melvin's and most recent day. film role, Melvin's most recent film role was in 2016, where he played Lord James Bernard in The Lost City of Zed. Lost City of Zed, the film that ties together the entire British acting world. <laughs> I was thinking about He's the center you... point of everything. I was thinking about a comment you made on that podcast the other day, and it's so true. It's like I lament for the um caricature of the <laughs> the evil fat person who is evil because they're <laughs> fat. <laughs> That's Ang- Angus McFadden, a fat baddie, morally corrupt because he because is because he because he ate too much. And that went into, I don't know, what What do you think came first? Was there a moral <laughs> corruption which led him to eat too much? And that like hinted at, hinted at his own greed? Or do you think like some of the extra fat and sugar, the trans fats in what he was eating, seeped into his moral core and perverted his moral compass to the point at which he could no longer be trusted to make rational decisions. I think there's a a good case to be made either way. Did the fatness make him evil or did the evil make him fat? I think we, it's in a question we'd have to, we will have, we'll have to, we'll have to ask for generations before we can bring clarity to this point. It's a chicken and egg situation, but I'll tell you one thing. It is, it is a chicken chicken or fat fat bastard situation. I was I was going to be much more witty. Alan oh yeah, Partridge. go ahead. What's yours? You do yours. Gonna, it's a chicken. It's a chicken and an egg situation. The only thing I can guarantee it is that the chicken is of the Kentucky Fried variety, <laughs> and the the eggs That's have been, uh, and flour has been added to the eggs, and they're now in the form of waffles. I I drove to Dundee with no shoes. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Final closing out this all star cast is uh, my favorite Michael Gotthard or Michael Gothard, if you don't like saying things in a funny way, who played uh, Father Barre. Michael Gothard is probably best known for portraying Bond henchman Emil Leopold Luck uh, with the oct- octagonal, 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 that's a word, glasses, and for your eyes only. For your uh, eyes only. He was. A, he also had a face that you could dine out on if you're choosing to dine on people's faces, if you prefer that, <laughs> rather than a table. If that's your, like, instead of a car crash fetish, you enjoy eating things off of a man's From nose. people's faces. Yeah, like face-based <laughs> cuisine. Well, yeah, there, is that, there is that, uh, that sushi thing, isn't it? Where you yeah, eat off like su- a stripper. I saw that in a film. It was called Sushi on the Raw. And... I stumbled from one Tokyo restaurant to another, <laughs> and I, I never came across that. Every time I saw sushi, it was on a little conveyor belt, and I thought that was rude that they advertised that. 
they put that like that was a reason to visit. That's why I went to Japan originally. I couldn't find that anywhere. I had to make my own. And yeah, yeah, it's not I actually as had much to... fun eating it off yourself. <laughs> but that's the chopsticks help. <laughs> I was going to go there myself. Anyway, what about Mr. Gotthard? So unfortunately, so here comes the fun ending for Mr. Gotthard. Gotthard, who struggled with depression for much of his life, committed suicide by hanging on 2nd of December 1992. He was 53 years old. The nature of his death and one unfortunate side effect of asphyxiation means that even at the very end of his life, Michael Gotthard. Hey! Hey! That's a long way around together. Talking about taking motorbikes to Kazakhstan. Now, that was the long way around to get to that punchline. Indeed. Nicely done. Love it. Let's talk plot. What the fuck That's, happens? Yeah. So, plot-wise, the film opens with a lovely little dance number as the rather androgynous King Louis Thirteenth of France and his friends act out a piece of musical theatre while Cardinal Richelieu looks on. The scene aims to show the cemented bond between church and state during this period of French history, along with some of the wackiness that goes on when people have absolute power and moral authority, like a child and mm. monster, a child police officer. Madness. Indeed. That kind of crack, Next. that kind of crack. Yeah, it sets us, we set the scene, we know where we are, it's fun times of the church, the power of the church. Similarly, next we cut to some Protestants being whipped and called dogs. Did you excellent. enjoy this scene? I did, I thought this was, you were this on was board. an excellent scene. Yeah, yeah, because they are just calling them dirty Protestants and hitting them and stuff mm. like that. Um, I found it yeah, to what, be a little offensive. Well, well, like, it's the 70s version of the Middle Ages, immediately. But at the same time, it is, um, like, fairly arrestingly violent and dour. And, like, the look of the film predates, you know, the fashionable saturation of anything set before 1900. And, it like, it, like particularly, I noted, like, okay, like, just even those first two scenes, it feels so physical, like, in terms of sets and props, like, the film gets early brownie points if one considers how minimal a decoration would likely be rendered via CGI where the film made today, you know? Yeah, so all the sets were made by uh, Derek Jarman, who went on to become something of a of of an accomplished filmmaker of his own. He made a lot of films with uh, Tilda Swinton, including Caravaggio, about the painter Caravaggio. I live right now approximately about five kilometers from the town of Caravaggio. Where the painter oh, came nice. from what about that that's good isn't it never been there never will won't watch the film either it's not for me but anyway yeah Derek jarman he made some lovely physical sets was this at pinewood studios i, I think do so, not yes. recall yeah so a great physical location constructed these giant castle walls which really served to set the scene yeah and they were like the fortifications of that sort in general after the religious wars came it became like a because so many cities kind of did the, did the, started doing that. Like, you look it up. There's so many of them. Instances of a city just going. Well, do you know what? I think this is going to be the the side of the the second coming of our Lord. And the thing is, because they had fortifications, you know, they had to. They were put under siege by their own king. This happened like a bunch of times. So eventually, uh, most places said, "Okay, no more city walls." They wanted to pull them all down. We meet Oliver Reed's Grandier, who's overseeing the funeral of the former governor of his town, Loudon, who has died of plague 
as we mentioned before, Reed is instantly magnetic, extremely charismatic, and you get what it's all about. Then we see Vanessa Redgrave's sister, Jeanne Desanges, a hunchback nun peering out through the bars of her convent slash prison, admiring Grandier, a man she has sexual fantasies about. But don't we all join the back of the queue, sister? Literally every woman in this town wants to shag Oliver Reed, and probably most of the men too. Mm-hmm. It is, it is the, a, the nuns succinctly puts it he's the most beautiful man i've ever seen he does have a amazing magnetic quality and i think it is partially related to his hair because mm. in the later on in the film in a, a samson-esque move when his hair is removed it, it really takes away a lot of his sexual power so it's much yeah. like that episode of the simpsons where Indeed. homer it, gets hair back it, it has a big effect and as a man who is balding i need to find a solution so folks if you know any witchcraft for making hair on your head return send us a dm please father grandier is having an affair with a young lady who rather racistly wears white face philippa <laughs> triconte the daughter of a local nobleman when it's discovered that philippa's pregnant grandier tells her to hit the bricks and we see him starting to set himself up for a big fall by shagging every woman in town. Like a total lad. Mm -hmm. As the plague rages through the town, Grandier stumbles on this film's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, or Bebop and Rocksteady, if you're at my level of literary reference. One being the local doctor and the other the chemist. They are treating a lady with the plague, which involves inserting wasps into the wounds on her flesh, which I think you have to go private for these days. Yeah. There's a very deliberate kind of sense of the grotesque that often veers into like the Python-esque territory. And like once during that scene that you're talking about, uh, like fully sets up camp there where <laughs> Oliver Reed discovers an alligator in the bed of the woman. <laughs> and he, he says, what's this? An alligator? <laughs> and throws it out the window. I'm, like I mightn't have got the line exact, but I'm fairly close. It's beyond ridiculous. Yeah, he later has something of a, a fight using that alley. He uses a stuffed alligator as a weapon. It's very Happy Gilmore, this section of the film. Mm, indeed, yeah. But without the golf. Oh. Uh, in fact, the sheer number of plague victims in this film made me wonder about casting extras, because this film has a ton of extras, a lot of whom needed to get the lads out. And uh, mm -hmm. it seems like a shit job, just as Ricky Gervais warned us. Yes. On his show, um, yeah, uh, Afterlife. That's right. Yeah, um, and as Roger Ebert would later put it, all, all a lot of the extras happen to be uh, stacked. Mm. Did he say that? Is that in the review? Well, we'll come yeah, to yeah. Roger Ebert. We'll get, we'll, Roger we'll Ebert and his dirty mind later. A young lady, Madeline de Bruyne, played by Gemma Jones, approaches Sister Jeanne to inquire by joining her order of psycho nuns. Jeanne accuses her of being prideful and gives her a book to study. At confession with Father Grandier, Madeline confesses her love for him, as do two other women in the very brief scene. So that must be his daily routine back when being a priest was rewarding. In fact, I think I have a sound effect for this. Priesthood. Nice. Back at Grandier's shagging pad, without having sex, Grandier agrees to marry Madeline so that their love will be without sin under the eyes of God. You go, girl. You get that man. You get. You need to put a ring on it. 
Grandier is startled by a bunch of twats blasting holes in the city fortifications. This is where the film switches. This is where the horror mm-hmm. section starts with the introduction of Dudley Sutton's Baron de Lobardemont, who, under orders from the king, comes to Loudon to start pulling down the city walls. Grandier and Madeleine marry in secret. When Sister Jeanne finds out, it's fair to say that she does not take the news well. She tells Father Mignon that Grandier enters her room at night and commits lewd and wanton carnal acts with her. After Mignon discusses the issue with Baron de Lobardemont, Trinquant and the two underling knobheads, they decide to call in a specialist to act as an inquisitor, Father Barre, played by the late great Michael Gotthard. When the film does fully land in horror terrain, it kind of becomes clear why it caused such a stir and why it would continue to do so easily were it re-released right. today. In a review we'll get to later, Robert Roger Ebert accused the film of uh, generally being deliberately provocative and exploitative, and it's easy to see why. Even today, it's a relatively crazy watch from this point on, I would say, and I think there's something yeah. uh, of the 70s aesthetic, let's say, that makes it doubly so. In the convent, Father Barre and the others commence their investigation into Jeanne's accusations by questioning her, then giving her a very bloody medical exam to ascertain if she's had sexual intercourse, before finally giving her an enema with boiling water. Or some type of soup, it looked like. It's fucking rank. Hmm, not great. Barre is convinced that Jeanne has been possessed by the devil. He takes Jeanne and all the nuns of the convent out into the woods and prepares to execute them, However, at the last minute, he grants them a reprieve, seemingly on condition that they all go fucking mental and dance around <laughs> with their clothes off. Which they, they adhere to immediately. That is an interesting flip. Is that just an unspoken offer where he says, listen, if you go against Grandier and mental it up, then we will not execute you? Uh, it's one way to read it, but then the, the other way, I mean, even the book... The book doesn't really answer this question, but I think the the extent of the mass hysteria would suggest that these ladies are not really in control of the situation. The next scenes are just unmitigated chaos. Inside the church, Barre and his cohorts attempt to exorcise the demons from the group of nuns in what looks like a Kubrickian eyes-wide-shut orgy. Duke Henri de Condé, actually King Louis in disguise, arrives claiming to be carrying a holy relic which can exorcise the devils possessing the nuns. Father Barre Mm. then proceeds to use the relic in exorcising the nuns, who then appear as though they have been cured, until Condé slash Louis reveals the case uh, allegedly containing the relic to be empty. What follows are some scenes originally cut from the film, essentially a massive orgy in the church in which the disrobed nuns remove the crucifix from above the high altar and sexually assault it. Father Mignon climbs up onto a balcony in the church and starts, in the Dudley Sutton sense of the phrase, killing kittens. Sounds like my honeymoon. Mm. In the copy of the film that I got from Blockbuster, these scenes had been added back in. And yes. I have to admit, I've, I have, I've, in a number of films, I've seen people masturbate with crucifixes. This one was probably the most disturbing. I don't think it's quite as disturbing for me as that cut to uh, in The Exorcist. Let Jesus fuck you. That one is uh, probably for me. But yeah, that's it, true. It, that one's a lot bloodier. What's his name? Murray Melvin. His like his just face and demeanor is one of the more disturbing things about it. Like that, that big, just like flashes zoom into him as he's 
busy pummeling away at himself. It's rough. All the while this is going on, then we're cutting to um, Grandier having some sort of spiritual awakening, awakening in the wild, where he sort of comes comes to the conclusion that, like you know, like he's all right with having married married his lady, and he's gonna he's gonna continue with her, but he needs to go back to Ludon and be there for his people. So he kind of has his spiritual awakening in the wild, away from all the big constructions and. Right, uh, he looks art, like he's out in Zardoz. He is a bit in Zardoz, yeah. But he does he's like... He's just out having fun down by a lake. Exactly. coming, like, Having a spiritual awakening while all these nuns are riding uh, Christ. Uh, that, and Russell said, like, the, the contrast there was why the rape of Christ scene was so important. And, like, I get it. And it's funny because it's like, if you read some of the, ba- some of the negative reviews of the time, and they're like, it's deliberately provocative. And it's like, well, yeah. Yes, it is. That's what it's being. But I mean, and it's one of the uh, bugbears people had with it, I suppose, that just because it was based on reality doesn't mean you should show it. But it's like, of course you should. I do get like what Russell would have meant by that. Like almost having the rape of Christ in that is almost the whole point of making the film. When Grandier enters the church, he's disgusted to see his people being exploited and treated in such a manner. Unfortunately, he's quickly arrested for heresy. At his trial, Grandier refuses to confess to being in league with Satan. He does, however, confess to being an absolute top lad, Mm. hoping that the court will find in favor of dudes rocking. Yeah, that would be... I mean, technically speaking, he should definitely have gotten off on that, to be fair. The dude just rocked. Instead, he's found guilty of heresy and sentenced to death. Oh, no! Mm. In a Samson-esque move, Grundy's hair is cut, leaving him looking far less sexually powerful than before. He's then tortured as Father Barre breaks his legs with a large hammer. All the while, Grundy refusing to confess. He's tied to a stake and burned to death. Mignon, while watching the execution, suddenly doubts his actions and Grandier's supposed guilt. Yeah, um... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just clear that, like, I don't know. Oliver a Oliver Reed's hair must be made of semen, or mm-hmm. or, or some such like, because yeah, he does he does adopt a sort of an um, an Uncle Fester type visage almost immediately. Yeah, it does not look. Good. Yeah, his yeah. head shape is a little strange. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he could he could lead a fucking um, column of uh, Combat Sixteen if he wanted. Is that what that's called? Uh, did you notice that there's uh, some black people in this movie? I did not. Well, ty- typical Andy, um, in the start at the on the, in the king's court, which oh god, we didn't even give no. m- give mention to the king f- uh, shooting Protestants dressed as birds, which is quite a funny little scene. I didn't care for that. The most disturbing part of the film for me is when Philip's uh, father holds Grandier's bastard child aloft as Grandier burns to death, yelling, look, bastard, look, which is actually something that features in the book uh, as reported at the time. Um, And it's just, again, it's something really emblematic of the madness of the religious wars, like the best stories being the truly insane shit that was carried out by the ones who figured themselves to be on the side of good, um, which I guess, again, is like fairly close to the film's core message like what mad shit can be done by people in a hysteria you know so to finish this off baron de lobardemont goes to see jeanne in the convent she's giving herself a boiling water douche now it's only a matter of time before she's selling fanny scented candles and self-flagellating for eating bread nice mildly topical reference there yes this Mm podcast this podcast smells like my vagina i'm sure it does the baron gives her part of one of grandier's bones which looks decidedly phallic 
Jam wastes very little time in, I'm not sure how to phrase this delicately, but I guess shoving it up her clunge hey. in order to kill another kitten. In the final shot of the film, we see Madeline escaping the bombed-out remnants of the town, making her way on the long road to some other French shithole. The end. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful final shot as well. I, rem- I imagine that uh, lady is just wandering away to be, um, I don't know, one- to be the hag in an episode of Blackadder somewhere. She seems like she's that way inclined. Mm-hmm. Roger Ebert reports to have hated this film. In one of the oddest reviews I've ever read, he writes sarcastically without blinking. For so long, you'll find yourself double-checking the tone just in case you need, to, just in case you've got it wrong. But you actually only need to check the relatively rare zero-star review he gave it. There are sixty-three films in total that manage this feat. This feat. Do you want to hear them? Okay, well, you're you're not going to read all sixty-three of them, are you? <laughs> can, can you give me some? Uh, give me you, three can- highlights. Caligula or uh, Death Wish 2 or I Spit on Your Grave and the remake of I Spit on Your Grave. They're there. Uh, they're, yeah, they make a lot of sense. Uh, Europe, uh, Juice Bigelow, European Gigolo, which... Uh, oh, come on. That's a classic. It's a bit harsh it too, isn't it? Juice Bigelow, European Gigolo. It's great. Indeed. It's not as good as the first one, clearly. No, it still, is not. Come on, it's solid. Uh, Freddy Got Fingered. Another one on there. I still haven't watched this. I still haven't watched that. I heard that Tom Green went a bit mental last November, had a bit of a breakdown, um, but I have not watched While traveling around the country? Yeah. Was that before or after he started traveling around the country? I was just reading today that he went off the deep end. I do remember during lockdown last year where he was struggling because he didn't want to leave his mansion Mm. in L.A. I remember seeing (laughs) that. He started going around the country. Uh, another one on it that you might have heard of The Hitcher is on there uh, Jaws the Re- uh, that's the one with uh, Rucker Hauer huh? yeah Jaws the Revenge The Life of David Gale is on there um, that's a strange one featuring famous pedophile Kevin Spacey this is it yeah Pink Flamingos and uh, this one I would protest to the end of my days it's got Police Academy on there which is a hilarious uh, movie yeah 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 it's unfair Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead Ah, that's the one with Gary Oldman and Tim Roth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I quite like, actually. Mm-hmm. I think that's an enjoyable film. You've got the remake of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You've got Walker, which is a film I love. Uh, have you seen that? With what's, Ed, what, what's Walker again? With Ed Harris playing this, um, playing William Walker, who was, uh, what do they call it? You know, the American lads who tried to set up countries in South America or in the cowboy years, basically. Um, and he filmed it in Nicaragua at the time of you know the 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 contras against the what are they called Sandinistas. Also on the list is Wolf Creek. Okay, I haven't watched that, but I know it's an Australian horror film. It is, yeah, yeah, based on a true story. Now, I mean, do you see any sort of a pattern with the sort of films he hates? He doesn't like sex. I mean, outside of missionary position, he doesn't like violence. I get it. And he doesn't like Americans trying to set up their own societies in Central or South America. (laughs) Well, I mean, okay, first of all, like, let's see. In his review, he wrote, I don't know about anyone else, but frankly, I left the cinema theater feeling like a new, different, and yes, a better person. The poisons of our political system had been drained from me. I entered the theater as an unwitting participant in the atrocities of our time. But believe me, that's all behind me now. It took courage for me to go see the devils, just like it took courage for Ken Russell to make it. Now, taking that to have been written in 
opposite land, let's say. What do you think he's actually accusing the film of? Exploitative imagery, showing something that doesn't need, that he feels doesn't need to be shown. Hmm. Because I mean, it's, it's not worthy of being shown on film. That it was pointless. That it was unnecessary. It well, I don't know. It feels just like a such a guttural reaction, like as in. Okay, I encourage people to read the review after watching and to note that he was by no means alone in thinking of the film as he did. But I think neither was he correct. Like as Ebert, he like famously mellowed a bit as he was getting older. Giving he gave perfect ratings to film films as diverse as Anaconda and uh, The Last Temptation of Christ and found ways to find merits in films he disagreed with on more guttural levels. At some point in the review, he indicates one of his major gripes might have been that all the nuns appeared to be young and stacked. But, like, this isn't exactly a gripe we can take so seriously from such a big, great friend of Russ Myers and the he's co-writer on fucking Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and a big fan of the likes of Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, you know? So I think, like... I think it's just a conflation of all of that shit with the Catholic imagery. Like, Ebert wrote a lot, and to me this review is a yet-to-lapse Catholic writing from his gut, which is fine, but not nearly as objective as the man who gave Anaconda uh, the same rating as Goodfellas, a clearly inferior film to Anaconda. Um, and had the film been more successful and achieved a wider legacy, I feel he might have been forced to to look again and reassess but that said he always held firm on his hatred for blue velvet so who knows but i feel like that guttural catholic reaction like caused him to miss a lot of things you know the film is definitely because i really really like the film i can understand why people would not enjoy it it can be quite disturbing in parts but i just think that there is even even if at that center point there's things you dislike. There are definitely a lot of merits, just objectively speaking here, wouldn't you say? He'd only been writing at the Chicago Sun-Times for about four years. He was very much at the start of his career when he saw this film and wrote this review. And it almost... I can imagine some hipster blogger writing a similar review nowadays for some other film. I just think he was just very early into his career and this approach that he took of being ultra sarcastic which personally don't care very much for sarcasm thanks very much not very sarcastic <laughs> not really into the whole sarcasm thing so i think he was just he was swinging hard but uh, film reviewing is ultimately it is your own personal biases mm. that define everything and he just happened to be a catholic bigot <laughs> who hated sex yeah and that's it I mean, like, of all, of all, but of all the, like, merits he missed, of which, like, okay, the sets, the script, I would say, uh, the performances and the musical are all undeniably of great artistic merit. I would say even the direction, which seems to have been Ebert's uh, main point of contention, is undeniable in that it's, like, authentic, it's charismatic, it has integrity, like, it knows what it wants to do, it, it does it, like, he uses his camera a lot of the time like a paintbrush, just spinning it around, and I think, like, you can feel Ken Russell vibes in Terry Gilliam later on, who's I know was a big fan of this film, and there's major um, Fellini vibes in everything that I've seen of Russell's. Like, he was, you know, he was a, a talented guy, and he knew what he wanted to do, and uh, even if it wouldn't be for me, I would never take that aspect of, away from him. Like, the grandest irony in, in what passed um, Ebert by is that the message of the film 
and its telling is profoundly religious. And it's not simply because it's steeped in religious imagery, but like the, by the origin even of the word religion is just to fucking think deeply about something basically deeply 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 that's that's what that basically means and this film utilizes like a real historical happening when religion was at the peak of its destructive power and tells a much deeper inner story about finding truth and like moving beyond your weaknesses and into the face of fucking adversity and i understand i'm probably sounding like uh, Jordan Peterson right now and I fucking bet this film is on his must watched list but uh, like Russell himself was a religious man he converted to Catholicism in his 20s which is not something somebody just does on a whim you know what I mean and this is not the typical example of one given to thoughtless exploitation I mean it's not as solemn as something like End of Days or Stigmata but I mean I- oh my god <laughs> I haven't thought of it I saw both of those in the cinema Me- that was a weird back to back yeah, and they came out around the same time. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like the classic make Hollywood makes the same film. Yeah, put two films into production, and yeah. And sure, wasn't Gabriel Byrne in both of them? Mm, I think so. Yeah, he was a goodie in one and a baddie in the other. I think he's the baddie in End of Days, and he's a goodie in Stigmata. That's right. Yeah, sure. He's he's Satan in End of Days. But I mean, I like I do think you know, like I I really do think there's a big fat positive message in here it's arguable whether or not you need the rape of christ sequence but i would understand why it's there too just to contrast with fucking oliver reed off in the hills you know anyway yeah the devils eh yeah yeah i really liked it i really liked it you less so but sure i don't know maybe we'll get something you'll like a little bit more next week speaking of which find out what are you bringing to the table so i'm bringing to the table a film from 1985 it is an American black comedy crime film directed by John Huston. It's Pritzy's Honor. Hmm. Okay, i never seen that. I've, I, me neither. I never saw it. All right. Uh, what I'm bringing to the table is 1953 classic western directed by George Stevens, Shane. Oh, I've, I've seen Shane. Never Once. seen it. It's good quality, bit of Jack Palance, bit of, uh, who's it, Alan Ladd. Alan Ladd, yes. Your options are 50 or it's kind of horse thing. Ah, it's got to be the horse, hasn't it? I, I knew the answer. It's 50. Hey, Pritzy's Honor it is. Ah, oh, Shane on the back again. Pritzy's Honor it is. Okay. Shane's good. I, I do enjoy Shane, but Pritzy's Honor it is. So what, uh, what's the criteria for next time round? Next week, we will be watching a sequel. Oh, yes. Weekend at Bernie's 2 coming up. Oh, we, we kind of have to I can, watch I, that. I, I, I can, I, yeah, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'll just reveal my choice now. It's that or Tremors 4. All right, well, uh, th- well this was a, a good one morning that we took to record this. Yeah, I can't believe this is the first time we've recorded this episode and the first time that we've said any of these words. I changed I a lot of my words. how easy this was. I can't believe how seamless the recording process was for this episode. Nor I. Very happy with this episode. Uh, okay, um, so until uh, next week, I guess. Bye. Yep, until 2025. Bye. Bye.